Uh, there's a film that got critical acclaim. It's a kind of a gruesome story, but uh, nonetheless inspirational. The film tells the true story of Aaron Ralston. Maybe some of you saw it. 127 Hours is the title. Ralston was a real-life rock climber, a canyoneer, who went on a solo hike and a climbing adventure in Blue John Canyon in southeast Utah. And while climbing, by himself, he dislodged a boulder and he slipped and fell to the bottom of a slot canyon, followed by the boulder, which, which smashed his right arm and trapped him at the bottom of the canyon. And his calls for help were never heard. And so he began to ration water and he began to ration the battery life on his little video camera as he told his story of imprisonment. After a few days, Ralston realizes that this is life or death drama. And so five days in, after 127 hours, using his understanding of torque, he manages to break both of the bones in his trapped arms. He applies a tourniquet made out of his t-shirt and with the small blade of a multi-tool that he had with him, he amputates his own right arm in order to free himself. And Paul writes to us, Colossians chapter 2, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And the aorist imperative tense of that verb denotes a sense of urgency. That this is life or death and requires decisive action. And so the Ralston story is a picture of the verb. That Paul uses here. He literally says that the Greek root is nekruo, put to death, murder, annihilate that which is earthly and fleshly in you. We don't like to talk about that kind of stuff. But what we noted last time is that we have turned the corner in Colossians. Chapter 1 and 2, Paul is proclaiming the gospel. Again and again, holding up the gospel, turning it so that we can see all the facets of this beautiful thing that God has done, the vertical indicative, okay? And now as he turns the corner into chapter 3 and chapter 4, he narrows his audience. He's not talking to everyone any longer. He's talking to who? His church. He says in verse 1 of chapter 3, since, since you have been Raised with Christ, since you have been co-resurrected with Jesus Christ. So who's he talking to? Those who come to faith in Christ. And now, and now begins the process of sanctification, of being set apart. We introduced several big words last week. The word sanctification, to be set apart for God's purpose, to, so that we might live out his original intent for our lives. 
And we talked about the fact that the, the reformers, the Puritans, had two other words. The sanctification has two parts. Vivification, be, that we are made alive, co-resurrected, made alive with Christ. And mortification, that there's something that has to die. And the beautiful image that I'm trying to keep alive in your brain, that's why it's on the front cover of the program, is the picture that John Calvin gives us of the eagle. You see, because vivification and mortification, we are brought into relationship with Christ, and we are made alive at the same time we die on the cross with Him. We're made alive with Him. Simultaneously, these two things, vivification, that which is enlivened by the Spirit and made alive, is is like the wings of an eagle is working in concert with mortification to put to death in us that which needs to be put to death. And if we have no relationship with Christ, if we're not in relationship with Him, then there is no life in us. We're just on our own. And we might be very moral people, but we look like this. Like an eagle with one wing. We might be really moral, but we're not going to get off the ground. We're not going to fly. That's the point. Because we are made alive in Christ, we have by grace what we need to get off the ground, to soar. And Calvin talks about the fact that we, by the Spirit, by the breath, by the wind of God, are carried we are carried almost effortlessly, effortlessly at times to higher and higher places by His power, by His grace. So it's interesting because, because there is, what we talked about last week was grace-driven effort. There's work to do, hard work to do. But it is not self-driven. It's driven by grace. And we talked about we just, at the end of the message last week, we described those five things from out of Chandler's book, Explicit Gospel, that describe grace-driven effort. It fights with the rep- weapons of grace. It fights with the rep- weapons of grace. The, the weapons of grace are these, the blood of Christ, the Word of God implanted and embedded in our lives, and the promise uh, and the faithfulness of the new covenant. So it fights with the weapons of grace. Grace-driven effort goes for the roots, not the branches. The roots, not the branches. You'll notice the very first thing Paul says here in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly where? In you. We're not talking about the branches, the visible fruit. of unrighteousness that, might, that will eventually show up. Paul is saying what needs to be put to death is that which is down in you. We have to go for the roots, not the branches. Grace-driven effort, that's, that's its focus. Three, it, it, it fears God. It has an appropriate fear of, of God. It fears God above men. Fourth, it is dead to sin because it's enlivened. The spirit is enlivened. The, the enlivened spirit of God, the new life in us is dead to sin, unresponsive to sin. And then fifth, we said grace-driven effort, and this is where we land today, advocates violence. Violence. Murdering what is sinful earthly and fleshly in us. Hmm. So here, 
Because Paul says in verse 5, put to death therefore. We're going to go back and read it from verse 1. Because you always have to, when, when there's a therefore, you have to figure out what the therefore is there for. Okay, so verse 1 through 4, set this up. And then we're going to drill down on verse 5 through verse 10 today. Okay, so here you go. Ready? If you don't have your, if you've got scripture or you've got the smartphone app, get it up because you're going to need it. But if not, you can follow it on the screen. If then, or since then, you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And set your minds on things that are above, not things on the earth. For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore... What is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In in these you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and you have put on the new self which is being renewed continually is the force of the tense of the verb continually being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator and so as promised last week we're going to give some attention to the details of the text beginning here with verse 5 now you know, in, in verses 5 through 10, we're just going to follow Paul's outline. Paul gives us three imperative verbs. We're going to just follow those three imperative verbs. The first imperative is murder, put to death. Put to death, and he gives us a list of, you know, of what I think collectively are sexual sins to deal with. And then the second imperative, he says, take off cast off as you would dirty clothing these sins of speech and all of the sins listed there are sins that involve the way we use our mouth and then the last imperative he says stop this one thing in its tracks stop lying and start telling the truth to one another Murder, put to death, take off. Now listen, it's, you know, it sounds like he's mixing metaphors, but here's what I'd like for you to, you know, to think about for a moment. When Paul uses this metaphor of to take off as if you were casting off clothing, you'll remember that when Jesus was resurrected and John and Peter ran into the tomb, what did they find? They found something. They found grave clothes. Neatly folded, left in the sepulcher. What was Jesus wearing when he left the tomb? The radiant clothing provided for him in the resurrection. He left the old clothes there. 
The grave clothes were left behind. What Paul is saying is leave the grave clothes behind. Take off the grave clothes. You remember in John chapter 11, when Jesus goes to the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, who's now been dead for four days and in the tomb, Jesus stands before the tomb and he prays and he calls Lazarus forth and Lazarus comes forth from the tomb. And then what does Jesus say? Unwrap him. Take off the grave clothes so that he can walk free. See, because there was Lazarus. You know, Jesus calls him forth, and Lazarus comes out like this. That looks like a lot of Christians I know. The Spirit of God says, unwrap, take off the grave clothes, and you can walk in freedom. So it's a wonderful image if you, if you kind of lock onto that. You're going to put to death, and then you're going to take off the grave clothes, and then you're going to stop lying. You're going to start being authentic about your spiritual journey, where you are on the journey, to one another, because community is involved in this. The thing that got Aaron Ralston in trouble was what? He went by himself. He's tackling the canyons by himself. We're not to do that, you see. You know, that second set, the way we use our mouth and the way we talk and the way we speak truthfully to one another, you know, speaks of, of, of what's, what's involved in community from that standpoint. Okay, so verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality. The Greek word there from the original text is, is pornea. Does that sound familiar? Originally... It was associated with prostitution. And if you know anything about religions, particularly the pagan religions of Paul's day that were prevalent in all that area around Turkey, temple prostitution was a prominent part of that. And pornea was first associated with this idea of prostitution. There's another word that we, that we brought into the English language that you know, Right? Pornography from the same root. What this word came to mean by the time that Paul uses it, it's a more broad and general term for any sexual behavior that violates or does not fit with God's design or purpose for sexuality. And William Barclay, who is a wonderful commentator and a very accurate historian in his commentaries, paints this picture of the cultural context in which the letter of Colossians was written. He says, in the ancient Roman world, sexual relationships before marriage and outside of marriage were considered normal, accepted practice within the culture. The sexual appetite was regarded as a thing to be gratified, not to be controlled, an attitude which is, Barclay says, not unfamiliar today, although it is usually supported with arguments that lack any sound reason or basis. The Christian teaching, Paul, um, uh, Barclay says, the Christian teaching on chastity in relationships was seen as a completely new 
virtue that was being introduced into the world of its day. Now, you and I know it goes all the way back to original design in the garden, doesn't it? Sex was not a dirty thing. God created it. When God first introduced Eve to Adam, what was she wearing? Nothing. No wonder he said, wow. Bone of my bones and flesh in my flesh. Because he was seeing flesh and bones. It was a wonderful thing that was created by God so that not only the man and the woman could have an experience of pleasure together, they could procreate their family, they could have children, but it also would, you know, it would leave, it, it, would, it would give them some grounds for, for an additional and inseparable bond with one another, the intimacy of that sexual act. And from the very beginning... And when Jesus was questioned at any point about marriage or divorce, he always went to original design. Always went to original design. And we should too. We are in a culture that says anything goes. And Paul says, put to death. Search and destroy in you sexual immorality. Any Practice or thought about, you know, a sexual relationship outside the bonds of marriage does not fit God's original design and intent. And then he says impurity. The Greek word you, you will recognize, akatharsis. You know what a catharsis is? When someone has a, you know, a catharsis, it's a cleansing moment. It's a moment of, of real purity, of really seeing things as they really are. You know, and and it, it, a catharsis is a, is a moment of real clarity and a moment of real cleansing. When you put the, the ah in front of it, the alpha privative ah, before that root, it means impure or unclean, to make something filthy. To, to take something which God has called pure and make it something that it was not intended to be. And so it follows his train of thought. Kill, murder, sexual immorality, and impurity. This is best understood as impure thoughts or actions. And evil actions begin where? We know. In here. Within. They come out of the heart. Where decisions are made with mind, emotion, and will. What God has created pure and beautiful between a man and woman who are married and committed is viewed as something that is impure. The word passion. Put to death sexual immorality, impurity, and passion. It's the word pathos. You know that word? Pathos. Most often in Scripture, it's translated as lust, inordinate affection. The Greeks also use this word to describe violent emotions or out of control 
emotions. The word pathos always in scripture is used in a negative sense, never in a positive sense. It means uncontrolled desires, uncontrolled emotions. I believe Paul is using it here in a more narrower sense to talk about sexual gratification. If we are consumed by lust, it means that we are consumed with the self. The object of our lust, that which we see becomes just that, an object. A thing to be used for our gratification to fulfill our need. The aim of lust is not love. It's to become a consumer. To destroy that which is real. To destroy the very thing we need. Frederick Beekner has said, Lust is the craving for salt in a man that is dying of thirst. The craving of salt in a man who is dying of thirst. So Paul says, put to death uncontrolled emotion, lust as passion. And he couples that with evil desire. Evil desire. Epithumia cocaine, a synonym of of the word we just spoke of, a synonym of lust. They are very closely related, and Paul uses them in, you know, in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He uses these two words again together in, in his teaching to the Thessalonians. But there is a subtle difference between the two words that I would point out to you. Pathos or lust is more physical, a physical urge, an uncontrolled kind of a sense of urge that is a reaction to stimulus, a sensory experience. There's an emotional link. If it is not dealt with decisively, it will act to use someone or something for its own selfish pleasure. Epithumia cocaine is evil desire which attaches to the memory of it. It begins to capture and invade our thoughts. Because it's more linked to the mind than to the emotion. So this is evil desire that primarily relates to the mind. It begins to seek to take over rationality. Isn't that interesting? They go together. And Paul says you must kill pathos, evil passion, and evil desire. Evil thoughts, impure thoughts. And then he adds covetousness. Covetousness. Pleonexia in the, in the original language. Sometimes translated as greed. Often translated as greed. We could argue here that, uh, that it appears on Paul's short list of sins. As something that has to be exterminated. As greed or covetousness because of. Because it's an evil root in which all of the previous sins are sprung. If you remember, it appears as the last on the list of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. It's a compound word. 
There are two words, pleon for more and exo for to have. Literally just translates, you've got to have more. I've got to have more. Got to have more. That's what greed, that's what covetousness is. Covetousness is the root cause of all sin, according to John MacArthur. William Barclay writes in his commentary, It is therefore a sin with a very wide range. If it is a desire for money, it will lead us to theft. Maybe not to the extent of Bernie Madoff, but eventually we'll get there. We will abuse. If the desire is for prestige, it will lead to evil ambition. If the desire is for power, it will lead us to some sadistic kind of tyranny over others. If the desire is for a person, it will lead to a form of sexual sin. The bottom line, instead of worshiping and esteeming God, we will, be, we will end up worshiping at the altar of the self which Paul says leads to idolatry. Idolatry. And on account of these things, he says, the wrath of God is coming. When's that going to happen? We don't like to talk about the wrath of God, do we? When's the last time you signed up for a Bible study on the wrath of God? But Paul says it is definitely coming. You can count on it. God takes sin very seriously. He's not casual, nonchalant about it. But his wrath comes in one of two ways. We can experience the passive wrath of God. Or we can experience the active wrath of God. Now the active wrath of God was God just rains down fire out of heaven. Blows something up. Remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira in, in the book of Acts? They lied and they dropped dead on the spot. That's called active wrath. And it's found in Scripture. The word wrath, orge, the word wrath appears over 600 times in the Old Testament. Now, it doesn't appear often in the New Testament, only about 25 times. You know I'm saying, but, but Paul is saying the wrath of God is sure. It's in place and it is coming. It may come actively very soon or it might be you might experience the passive judgment or wrath of God you know that's very that's the very best picture of that's Romans chapter 1 read it lately let me just read you a little portion here Romans chapter 1 the thing is what's really scary the passive wrath of God is much more scary to me than the active wrath of God Listen, for the wrath of God, verse, this is verse 18 of chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what, they, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him. Eucharistas. 
talked about that a few weeks ago. They weren't thankful to him. But they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to, to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images that resemble mortal man, uh, birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. God turned them over to themselves. That's the passive wrath of God. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and they served the creature rather than the creator who had blessed them forever. Amen. And for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God gave them up. God gave them over. The picture of passive wrath is that he just lets us chart our own course. He just backs off and says, okay, go for it. See, and and here's the fallacy. We think we're getting away with something. We're breaking God's rules. You know what? It's our lives that end up being broken in smithereens. And then we look, we get down the road and we look at our relationships and we go, holy moly, how did I get in such a mess? And God says, I just held back my hand. I just let natural law, the law that I instilled in the universe, I let it run its course in your life. The passive wrath of God scares me more than the active wrath of God. Because you think what you can destroy in your wake. I'd rather have God come down hard on me. I told my 27-year-old son when he was a college student, I pray you get caught. That's the prayer of a father. That if you do something really stupid and out of line, you know, out of God's will for your life, that you will get caught. You'll get hammered. You know what? God answered my prayer two or three times. And he's better for it. I'd rather have the active wrath of God in my life than the passive wrath of God. But he says, it's sure. It's coming. One form or another. All right, we need to finish. How are we doing on time? Well, we're out of time. Hey, I got a good idea. We'll pick up there next week. How about that? The first imperative is that you are to kill all these areas in you that promote, that pamper, that coddle sexual sin. Apparently, that was a big deal in that culture. You know what? It's a big deal in this culture. A big deal in this culture. And God is looking for people who, 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 who understand the vivification that I'm alive now in Christ. So therefore, at the same time, I've got to mortify I've got to kill the flesh that's in me. I see a lot of Christians who just sort of pamper it. And then you wonder, why is there no joy in the life? Why are there no signs of life over here? Because they work together. They work together. There's three imperatives in this text. The first, kill Sexual immorality, impurity. 
lust, passion, evil desire, and greed and covetousness. Kill them. Because of these things, the wrath of God is sure and coming. God's wrath, simply the other side of his love. God is so serious, so passionate in his love for us. He's saying that he burns in anger against that which destroys what he loves, which is you. His love and his wrath, just two sides of the same coin. We don't like to talk about that, but that's the reality. And I'd rather have the active wrath of God in my life. I'd rather have God sit me down than to get way down that road and realize he's withdrawn his hand from me because of my stubborn heart that refuses to honor him. And then my life just goes to mess. Before long, it's a hell in a handbasket. Let's pray.